Imagine you're sitting in a courtroom, the weight of justice bearing down on your shoulders, all eyes on the person in the witness stand, recollecting a crime they witnessed and claim you committed. It's a tense moment, a defining one. You see, we're about to journey into the intricate realm of memory, where recollections can shape destinies and, all too often, create the wrong picture. How will the witness's memory serve them? Or, more importantly, how might it forge your own fate? In this episode, we'll dive into the labyrinth of memory, where fact meets fiction. You won't believe your ears, and by the end, you might not believe your own memories. I'm Sasha. I'm Gargi. I'm Anona, and you're listening to State of the Pod. Okay, let's talk memory. Are you guys ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Great, here we go. For this trick, Gargi, I'm gonna need you to give me a combination of four numbers. Uh, six, four, nine, one. Thank you very much. We're gonna revisit that later. Anona, quick, tell me, what did you have for breakfast? I ate a bagel. Delicious. Now, Gargi, what are the first three letters of the alphabet? A, B, C. Outstanding. To finish up, the four numbers that Gargi told me earlier were six, four, nine, one. And there you have it. I'm lost. Memory. That was all memory. Let me explain. Memory is divided into two categories, declarative and non-declarative. Declarative memories, as you may guess, are things you can declare. Someone like myself might say, tell me what you ate for breakfast, and Anona would declare, I ate a bagel. Exactly. This type of declarative memory is called episodic. I'm asking you to refer back to a certain episode in your life, like a personal experience or event. Another question might be, how did you get to the studio today? And you might respond, I left through the front entrance of my dorm, took the shortcut up through the pedestrian bridge, and cut through the ag quad. Okay, I understand. Along with episodic memory, there are two other types of declarative memory, semantic and working. Semantic memory includes facts and concepts. I asked Gargi the first three letters of the alphabet. I could ask her, what is the powerhouse of the cell? And she would declare, the mitochondria. Or I could ask her to explain string theory in 100 words or less, and she would declare, I don't know. Hmm. Okay. I could ask her, what's your social security number? And she would declare, no. Okay. Maybe later. Nonetheless, both those questions would give rise to semantic memory. They give rise to memory concerning information about the world. Facts, meanings of words, historical events, concepts, and categories. Finally, we arrive at the last of the three declarative memory types, working memory. I asked Gargi for four numbers, and if my working memory serves me well, I recall them to be 6491. If you asked me in an hour, or maybe a week, what those numbers were, I probably couldn't tell you. Ever walk into a room and forget what you needed? All the time. I hate it when that happens. It's all working memory, or I guess lack thereof. Working memory is designed to temporarily hold and manipulate information. It's why I can ask you to add 24 and 81 together and you could do a little mental math and declare the answer is 105. So, if my working memory serves me right, there is declarative and non-declarative memory. Declarative memory includes episodic memory, semantic memory, and working memory. Precisely. So can you tell me what non-declarative memory is? No. I mean, yes, sorry. Technically speaking, no. 
You can't tell someone or you can't declare a non-declarative memory. It's in the name, non-declarative. And that's because non-declarative memories are memories involving skills or tasks, often referred to as muscle memory. The only way to truly declare you remember how to swim would be to jump in a pool and do a lap or two. Answering yes to a question of if you know how to swim doesn't actually call upon or exercise that memory. You could argue that you're using episodic memory of your adolescent swim classes to declare you got into a pool and swam around. But the actual action of using your memory of how to swim is accessed through performance rather than recollection. Jumping into the deep end of a pool and saying, I know how to swim a bunch of times, doesn't actually help you get back up to the surface. In fact, it'd be pretty difficult to declare anything with your head underwater. Hopefully, as I've just demonstrated, what I'm about to say won't be of much help to our listeners at home. But I've actually been juggling three balls and balancing on a unicycle for the entirety of this recording. So now we know about the different types of memory, but how exactly do we remember something? Good question. There are three main processes that are involved in how memory works. Encoding, storage, and retrieval. Encoding refers to how information is learned and understood. There are four main methods for how information is encoded. Are any of you guys musicians? I play the piano and sing. Great. Using the example of a piano, when you pay attention to how the keys of the piano look, you are using visual encoding to take in information. Acoustic encoding is used when paying attention to how the music sounds. There's also tactile encoding, referring to how the piano keys feel under your fingers. And there's semantic encoding, which refers to context or what something means. Okay, so let me go over this one more time. Visual, acoustic, tactile, and semantic. Yep. And semantic encoding could be like paying attention to what the lyrics mean to me when I'm singing. Exactly. Information can be encoded in these four ways, but it doesn't necessarily mean that information is stored in the same way. Storage is how, where, how much, and how long information that was previously encoded is retained. Information is first stored in short-term memory and then shifted to long-term memory. I'm going to make up a tune tom. <laughs> Previous studies have shown that if information is encoded acoustically, it's more likely to be a part of your short-term memory and can only be kept there through repetition or rehearsal. So that tune I just hummed is going to be forgotten, unless I keep repeating it. Time and lack of attention cause you to forget things in short-term memory. So, how long do things in short-term memory last? Items in short-term memory last between 15 to 30 seconds. Short-term memory encodes about five to nine items of information, with seven being the average. And an item is just any piece of information that you remember. What about long-term memory? Are there time limits to long-term memory? No, there are no time limits to long-term memory. You can remember items in long-term memory indefinitely, or at least until the end of your lifespan. There's also immense storage capacity, so you can remember a lot more than seven to nine items. Semantically encoded information is primarily stored in long-term memory. However, other encoded information, like visually and acoustically encoded information, can also be stored in long-term memory. Got it. Okay, so the first two processes for remembering something are encoding and storage. Can you tell us a bit more about the third, retrieval? 
Retrieval is how individuals access information that has been stored. There are differences in how retrieval works for short and long-term memory. Short-term memory is retrieved in the order in which it is stored, like the order of numbers, whereas long-term memory is retrieved through associations, like remembering where you kept your keys by remembering what you were doing before it. Wait, that makes sense. I want to briefly point out how this relates back to our opening anecdote on witness testimony. We could bore you for hours about the intricacies of memory, but how does this actually impact us throughout our lives? There's a thousand examples I could give you, but the example we chose to highlight in this episode is how memory impacts us in the courtroom. Understanding memory encoding, storage, and even retrieval is crucial in the context of witnesses in court because the accuracy and reliability of the information provided by witnesses can significantly impact legal proceedings. When witnesses testify, they are essentially recalling the components that created a memory of the events in question. But, as Gargi mentioned, several factors can influence how these memories are encoded, stored, and retrieved. Start to think about how stress, personal biases, or even leading questions can impact the shape of memories at all three of those levels. But, more on that later. For now, Anona, take us back to the brain. So, what makes all of this memory possible? Let's take a look at what's going on biologically. Yeah, I was wondering. Are memories stored in just one part of the brain, or are they stored in many different parts of the brain? We've come to understand that memory involves almost every part of the brain in some shape or form. It isn't just stored in one area. We can look to specific parts of the brain that are actively involved in forming memories. In our brain, cells relay chemical signals back and forth. This process, called long-term potentiation, eventually generates memory. Remember what Gargi just covered with short-term versus long-term memory. A part of the brain, called the hippocampus, is in charge of turning short-term memory into long-term, sustainable memory. It does the heavy lifting for us. Still, there's a lot we disagree on, or have yet to understand, about memory. Some researchers believe the hippocampus builds parts of a memory by pulling from distinct locations within the brain. Others think it consolidates temporary memory into long-term memory. I remember learning about this in class. Memories that have a lot to do with certain scents might use parts of the brain involved in smell, as opposed to memories around specific sounds and regions involved in hearing. With all these details, memory is still highly fallible. Imagine you're asked to look at nine pictures of US coins, let's say pennies, and pick out the correct one. They're such a familiar object to us. We should be able to distinguish the right one and its details from the rest, right? We've looked at them our whole lives. Not really. Unless you collect coins or study their details closely enough to commit to your semantic memory, none of us can remember the exact position of words or images on the penny. Memory can be incredibly versatile with any information, but also highly unreliable with information that we've barely formed memories about. Okay, so how are memories actually formed? We can think about that in four general steps. First, you observe or see something, and the details of that fleeting moment get translated into information your brain can use. Sights, sounds, smells, and tastes. To make sense of all of this seemingly unrelated activity, the brain then consolidates it into a pattern of related connections and understands how details relate to each other. 
So in generating all these connections between different pieces of information, memories are formed. Exactly. It's called a neural circuit. The next step is making this information permanently stored by your brain. When your brain does this, it chemically changes. It looks entirely different. Once these changes to this actual structure of your brain keep happening, they become more and more stable and can be later retrieved when you think back to them days, months, or even years later. These are memories. So does our ability to remember change with age? Absolutely. As we speak to older adults and elderly family members, we notice small changes in remembering a person's name or trivial details in daily life. What's actually happening when an older family member seems to be constantly forgetting something is their brain trying to find similarities between events instead of recalling the details of isolated events. What's the result? Distorted or even false memories that make us believe something happened differently than it actually did. And this can be quite problematic in the courtroom. Oh no, I forgot I was supposed to turn in an assignment before recording. Let me go do that really quickly. But maybe in the meantime, you can talk about memory errors. Memory researcher Daniel Schachter came up with seven memory errors, which he calls the seven sins of memory. He divided these into three types, forgetting, distortion, and intrusion. One memory sin, absent-mindedness, is what Anona just did, forgetting due to lapses in attention. What are the other six? The others include transience, forgetting since the access to your memory decreases as time passes, like forgetting something that happened 10 years ago. There's blocking, forgetting since information is temporarily blocked. Like forgetting someone's name that's on the tip of your tongue. Yes, exactly. And the distortion memory errors include misattribution, suggestibility, and bias. Misattribution is confusing the source of a memory. So it's like remembering something from a dream as if it happened in real life. Suggestibility is a type of distortion error that occurs from false memories. And bias is a type of distortion error when your own beliefs distort your memories. What about the last memory sin? The last sin is an intrusion of memory, when you are unable to forget an unwanted memory due to trauma. Wow, the seven memory sins. It's almost biblical. Now, there are many scholars that spend years pursuing graduate degrees with the hope of maximizing how they can exploit what we do and don't understand about memory. These individuals study memory on an interdisciplinary level, cross-sectioning factors like stress, suggestion, and bias, and their impact on the retrieval of crucial memories. Sasha is basically saying that doctors approach memory with the aim of harnessing its malleability across different measures. You're absolutely right. But I'm not talking about doctors. I'm talking about lawyers. With respect to the case, lawyers will study research on memory suggestibility to understand how external influences can shape and distort recollection. This is particularly relevant when it comes to witness statements and confessions. Lawyers may also use their knowledge of memory to effectively cross-examine witnesses, probing the accuracy of their recollections and poking holes in the inconsistencies of their testimonies. The following clip is from Law & Order. Pay special attention to how the witness delivers his testimony and how the lawyer representing the plaintiff addresses him and the court. I saw him and him. For the record, the witness has identified the defendants, Ronnie Ellis and Juan Flores. Who else did you see? The other defendant. 
William Reeves. He was holding her down. What did you do next? I went home. I know I should have called the police, but I didn't. I started drinking instead until I forgot. Let's break it down. The witness gestures to two of the defendants and pinpoints them as suspects from the crime. I saw him and him. In response, the lawyer identifies them. The witness has identified the defendants, Ronnie Ellis and Juan Flores. What is he doing? Well, if we've learned anything about memory today, it goes to show that details can help when trying to construct a better picture. To the jurors, these faces now have a name. They have identities and people have identities. People also commit crimes. Humanizing the accused helps create a clear and accountable link between the defendant and the alleged crime. Notice how the lawyer elected to use their names even though the witness never actually said them in his testimony. But what else does the lawyer say? Who else did you see? Catch that? Who else did you see? Not may have or who do you think you saw? The language affirms that the person the witness is about to identify was the person from the crime scene. This nitpicking goes both ways. This next clip shows how the lawyer representing the accused responds to the testimony. Notice how he draws his own conclusions from the declaration of the witness. Did you ever describe the suspects to the NYPD before they were arrested? No, I waited too long to come forward. When you found out that your friend had been seriously injured, did you feel bad? Yes. Bad enough to positively ID whichever suspects NYPD had in custody, even though you were too drunk to remember what they actually looked like? Objection. Withdrawn. Mr. Nelson, are you intoxicated right now? Yes. Yes, I am. Now, it's important that I add as an afterthought that those clips are fiction. As much as art likes to model the real world, I'd rather present you with real data on the problem at hand. 73% of the 239 convictions overturned through DNA testing were originally based on eyewitness testimony. Now this statistic comes from the Innocence Project. The Innocence Project is backed by their mission to free the innocent and prevent wrongful convictions from being made in the first place. In an enlightening talk about the science of justice, panelist and John Jay College of Criminal Justice psychologist Saul Kaysen was accosted by a mysterious assailant the mugger runs up on stage, grabs the notebook out of Kaysen's hands, and runs off. After, facilitators asked an audience of eyewitnesses to see if they could pick out the true perpetrator from a photo lineup. Let's discuss how it played out. First off, the suspect with the most votes was incorrect. They got the wrong guy. Further, the suspect with the second highest votes was in fact the cameraman, who had been standing in front of them the entire time. Kaysen goes on to discuss the repercussions of this enactment. Let's hear what he has to say. 83% got it wrong, and as we mentioned earlier, I would surmise that those of you who got it wrong are probably no less confident than those who picked number five about number five. <laughs> and the worst part is, the confidence you have now will only grow between now and the time you get into a courtroom, because you will receive confirmation after confirmation. So by the time you appear in court, you are so dead sure of it that any jury that hears your testimony will believe you and vote for conviction. Now, all this isn't to say we should never trust the testimony of an eyewitness. Eyewitnesses play an essential role in establishing the sequence of events, identifying the individuals involved, and corroborating or challenging other evidence. With that said, these testimonies are not always accurate. 
Instances of mistaken identity leading to wrongful convictions underscore the importance of careful investigation, the use of best practices in eyewitness identification procedures, and the need for a fair and balanced evaluation of eyewitness testimony in the criminal justice system. So the marvelously muddled world of remembering. From the courtroom, where recollections can shape destinies, to the depths of the brain, where brain cells communicate to form lasting memories, we've explored the labyrinth that is remembering. As we continue to unravel the mysteries of memory, let us approach the subject with both awe and skepticism, recognizing its power to shape narratives and its susceptibility to manipulation. Memory, after all, is not just a recording of the past. It's a dynamic and ever-evolving part of the human experience. I'm Gargi. I'm Anona. And I'm Sasha. And this has been State of the Pod.